0: Psalm 119, verses 169 to 176. Let's read it first and we'll talk about it. This, I will say that this Sunday school class may bring up a lot of conversation. If it does, that's okay. We'll go into the next one. But there's some interesting points here this morning that you might find kind of troubling. Anyway, in Psalm 119, verses 169, this is the last set of verses from David here. We read, Let my cry come near before thee, O Lord. Give me understanding according to thy word. Let my supplication come before thee, deliver me according to thy word. My lips shall utter praise, when thou hast taught me thy statutes. My tongue shall speak of thy word, for all thy commandments are righteousness. Let thine hand help me, for I have chosen thy precepts. I have longed for thy salvation, O Lord, and thy law is my delight. Let my soul live, and it shall praise thee, and let thy judgments help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek thy servant, for I do not forget thy commandments. A lot of these verses I know sound extremely repetitive. This is why we're really not doing this more expositorial, we're doing it more topically. Because this is a good lead-in for what we've learned basically weeks ago, that Scripture is unequivocally inerrant. We know that it is. We know that we read, eight, eight, I think it was eight or nine points about how there's been a real movement to, to try to test the inerrancy of Scripture, calling it errant and saying that there's all these reasons. This morning we're going to look at something else that I think is very fascinating. But when we see this, first of all, I'd like to look at David's demeanor and how he's treating after all of these verses and what we've read and how he's used so many different catchphrases and words to describe Scripture, I find it fascinating that all of the words that he describes Scripture are very uplifting, and they're very academically, I think, educational that really point to the reverence of worship and Scripture. So we see here that this is where Psalm 119 ends up. And in 176, it shows you would think that David would end this portion of Scripture with some kind of celebration. No, he says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. But we see, he says in 169, he says, let my cry come near before thee. You know, what, some of the other words that we've been learning regarding Scripture, what Scripture is referred to from David all throughout Psalm 119, is statutes, precepts, testimonies, commandments. He calls them my delight. He calls them thy word. And at one point, all the way back in Psalm 19, he says, it's a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It shows us through the dark forest. And we think of Christian. Remember in in Pilgrim's Progress and how all the trials and the peaks and the valleys and the hills that he faced, the one constant was God's word is what got him all the way through and even over the river of death. And that was so fascinating. And we see how the Lord brought him through. But you know that the antithesis of David, through all of these words and what he speaks about Scripture, the antithesis of all the words that he calls Scripture, everything that he says is true, and anything counter to that he calls false ways. This morning we're going to look at five foundational principles of the new progressive Christian movement. And some of the ingredients. It's going to sound a lot like the study we had several weeks ago when we were talking about the several steps of the Bible being errant, which is what it's being called today is very errant. This is going to be pretty interesting. We see upon the completion of Psalm 119 119, a proclamation here. David mastered God's word. He 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 basically throws his arms up. He does not, I mean, he does not throw his arms up in some progressive praise worship with laughing and entertainment. No, he cries. He says, "I cried out to the Lord." He bewails his sins and his offenses against Jehovah, but he rejoices in the saving grace of Christ, his king. Christ, our king. It's, isn't it wonderful the very same king he worshiped is the very same one we worship? What a connection there. What a physical, spiritual, and mental connection we have there, having Christ as our king. Here David calls his prayer. He cries unto the Lord in his prayer. He says, let me cry. He says, this is my prayer, my supplication. He's begging the Lord to help him. Many times we see through David's writings how he prayed and he begged the Lord to help him. And how do we approach God? We approach God with reverence. And Christ many times tells us when he speaks about prayer that we are to get alone, not to be out in the streets like with the phylacteries on our garments like the Pharisees and to make it look like we're some real pious people that are above everybody wearing these incredible robes and all, but we're to do it humbly inside of our own, inside of our own prayer closet. It could be our bedroom or whatever. But we need to make time to do that alone, and we need to have a, a, a real private, intimate conversation and re- relationship with our Lord. So we see, basically, a good question is, and we can see, you know, what David's trying to teach us here, who cries about their sins anymore? Who actually cries about their sins or their souls anymore? That doesn't seem to be anything that we really hear about or see much anymore, especially when we listen maybe to, um, you know, messages on on the radio or whatever. It seems to be a lot of laughing, a lot of entertainment, a lot of fun, a lot of prosperity. There's a lot. It's all all up. Everything's up. But we don't see people lamenting over their sins. And David said, I lamented over my sins. He said, there's one over me that I know that I defied. And he loves the Lord for his salvation. And we see the word salvation all throughout Psalm 119. But he says he cried. Do we see crying in Scripture? Is that a good thing? Can it be a good thing? Any examples, Dave? Yes, that's what I—that's exactly what I'm going into. Teresa, do you have any? Yeah, I mean, crying is part of Scripture. It's in there. What about Christ's reaction, where He groans in the Spirit and He sees the sisters, Mary and Martha, grieving, and He sees the Jews grieving, and he, we see that there is compassion here compassion for the sisters and i think that he basically there may have been a little hint of disgust because of those that did not have compassion on what was going on pastor crying so is natural of funerals just like just talking and today they want to have celebration services for forget about crying just celebrate the life but that's not natural right the people should be missing the person that's gone right and then they should also be hearing about you know, that's what the effects of sin is death. That's a wage. The wages of sin is death. And that's a great place in order when people are not going to the Lord's house on the Sabbath day. When they go into a funeral, that should be just like a, a service. That's where they can hear the gospel. That's a great way to proclaim the gospel. And when people are weak and they're like, it's a little scary when you're sitting there at a funeral and you see a dead body. Isn't it? I don't no matter whose it is, and everybody has a degree of, of, of horror and tragedy because some people are very close to that person. Others are maybe distant, haven't seen it for years. But no matter what, that is a good time to bring that gospel and to and try to penetrate the hearts of those that are weak and are suffering. And I believe through that, that, that's the greatest encouragement from Scripture. We know that the shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept, John eleven thirty five. 35. And we see that Christ was, he was sorrowful. He groaned. In the Greek, it's translated, it's called embremmaomai, to be moved with anger, to admonish sternly, displeasure, anger, indignation, antagonism, express indign, indignant displeasure with someone. And Christ was groaning against the sin that causes death. When we read about that cup that. He says in the garden, Christ he cries out to the Lord, and he's in a physical state that probably no one of us human beings could have ever lived through, having thrombosis with blood coming out of his pores. He said, oh Lord, could this cup pass before me? And the question in is, what is in that cup? Metaphorically speaking, what did he see? What is he talking about in that cup? He groaned, and it says that he was sorrowful in his heart. Was it the sin that he was bearing for us? Was it the actual vision of what he could actually physically see in hell? What it, what it must look like down there? But it says that he groaned. But here, there's another form of groaning. He wept. What does the Lord tells us, tell us to do? You know, we talk about these funerals. It's a little bit different at these celebrations of life now because it's more of a party. But when you go to a real funeral, you know, sometimes you don't have to go up to the person who lost their dear, close loved one. You don't have to say a whole lot. Christ doesn't say to sit there and try to give this long oration to try to change their heart. He says to weep with those that weep. And sometimes we're called to do that. David groaned, he cried. We see to groan as a form of displeasure in these verses in Jeremiah fifty-one, fifty-two. Wherefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will do judgment upon her graven images, and through all her land the wounded shall groan. Joel 1.18 says, How do the beasts groan? The herds of cattle are perplexed because they have no pasture. Yea, the flocks of sheep are made desolate. And this is what Christ is experiencing when he's going through this with Lazarus. He has a handful of people that believe him and the rest of them are rejecting him and are going against him. And we see that right in the beginning of verse 12, I mean chapter 12 in the narrative of Lazarus. Where Caiaphas, they wanted to kill Lazarus on top of killing Jesus. And it's no wonder that Christ groaned in the spirit. It's amazing how he lets the the women, Mary and Martha, escort him to the grave of Lazarus. He's in the tomb. He weeps. How precious is this? He weeps. Jesus wept. Here is the compassion for his friend. He weeps for the man who he created from the dust who he called a friend. I always find that fascinating. Even though Christ knew he had the power to raise Lazarus from the dead and that he was going to do it, he still weeps. That goes back to what he said, weep with those that weep. When people are hurting, sometimes we just need to have compassion and be careful what we say and just be quiet. Romans twelve fifteen. Can someone look that up, please? There's another. There's one other example before we go forward of, of weeping and crying. That I, that this one, it's always touched my heart. Also, we'll look at that one in a minute. Romans twelve fifteen. Anyone? There it is. You know, I think it's important when we talk about these verses that we go look at them, we find out where they are. And you know, that's a good one to write down and an easy one to memorize. Rejoice with those that rejoice. Be happy when other people are rejoicing over victory. Let's not covet what they have and try to be nasty and bring them down. Let's rejoice with them. Let's encourage them. But when they're down and when we're trying to be servants of Christ and we're serving our fellow man, weep with those that weep. And try to encourage them. And we don't all do that perfectly, I know that, but that's why Christ reminds us to do it, because it's easy to forget, because we can be very tied up in ourselves. Who had the compassion of Christ to weep for his brothers in the Old Testament? I think this is a really good example of weeping and crying. Here David says, Let me cry, let my supplication come before thee. Deliver me according to thy word. My lips shall utter praise. Who could better be described in the Old Testament than Joseph, who offered up his supplications to the Lord and the Lord made him patient and all through the trials that he's been through, look what happens. Does anybody remember when Joseph was weeping and why? There was one time he fin- You would have thought he wept when they pulled him out of that hole. The young man. And they, and they sent him into slavery to separate him from his whole family. You would have thought that he was weeping when he got thrown into jail over the uh, Potiphar's wife incident. That's not it? Yes. You would have thought that he was weeping when he was in jail. And he, even though he was second in command, he had to stay there all those years. But the time that he weeps, so Teresa says, when he sees his brothers and his father, and he's reunited after all those years. Can you imagine being a fly on that wall when Joseph the whole time disguises himself and they can't recognize him? Perhaps he had a beard down to here and he had all the tunics or he had all the, all the hats or whatever and the garb and the chains and all the stuff for the Egyptian you know, royalty basically and none of them recognize him. Can you imagine when he pulls the mask off before he even shows himself, he's already crying in the back room. He loves him. That's compassion. That's Christian compassion. Weep with those who weep. Genesis chapter four verses 4:30. Someone look that up and read it. Genesis 4:30. 40, Genesis 43:30. Sorry. Thank you, Jacob. How could he walk in there without covering the redness of his eyes? They probably saw it and thought, what's the matter with him? And he's trying to hold back the emotion, and he just couldn't do it. He was so, he was so just lifted up in his heart. Getting back to David, you can imagine the weeping he had at this Bible verse here. This is the Bible verse here that really brings together the horror of and the pain and the pale of just absolute unbridled sorrow that he had when Nathan came to him, David, and said, you are the man, you're the one, you killed Uriah, you had adultery, you did all these horrible things. And the Lord says, I'm going to, I'm going to chasten you for this. And here's what happens. The little baby, he said the little baby would die. The first little baby that he and Bathsheba had, that baby was going. And in 2 Samuel 12, 23, you can imagine the abject sorrow and the crying that David had. And you read this, and the Bible verse says, But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. That is such a sad Bible verse. But you want to know what I love about that? David knew something. He knew that that little baby was safe in the arms of the Lord. And it must have caused a lot of sorrow because of look, at all the, 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 all, look at all the penitential psalms that he wrote that he just lamented over what he had done. He cried and he cried and he cried. And that's probably what this verse refers to also. Let my cry come near before thee, O Lord. You know, in Psalm 51, he says, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, my iniquity have I not hid. That's what he says. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones that thou hast broken may rejoice. He felt so bad. Have you ever felt like that? Your body's in perfect health, okay? You've got perfect health. You have real good blood pressure. Your arms and your legs and all feel really good. You can get up and do anything. But someone hits you in the middle of your heart And it hurts you so bad. And you feel so bad about something that it's like your bones have been broken. That's what he says. That the bones that have been broken, that, Lord, wake them up. Make me to rejoice. Return unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways and sinners shall be converted unto thee. And what was in his heart was salvation. Guarantee he cried that night with that little baby. David begged the Lord for a supplication. He was lowly in spirit. That's an intransitive verb. It means to make a humble entreaty, especially to pray to God. It's a transitive verb. To ask humbly. To ask earnestly. To ask for earnestly and humbly. Do we do that in our prayers? Do we, do we approach the Lord with supplication, with begging the Lord and asking Him? These concerns of David reading that are petitions for God to hear him. He says, O oh Lord, hear me. He comes to God humbly as a beggar, which is extremely important. I remember hearing a a quote from a pastor many years ago about his vocation. He just said he's one beggar telling another beggar how to find bread. David is concerned that nothing would come between he and God, that his sins would be forgiven, and that nothing would come between himself and God to create a gulf between him so that there would be absolutely no connection. David yearned for that connection every day. We read last week how he, what did he do? He said, verse 164, seven times a day do I praise thee because of thy righteous judgments. Do we love the righteous judgments of God today? They're despised. They're hated. Even in churches, if you call them that, He prayed that Christ would advocate his prayers, that Christ would intercede and hear his prayers as David proclaimed that Christ is worthy to hear his prayers and present them to the Father. He's humbly saying that his works are not worthy. Boy, have we gone a long way from that, where works are supposed to be worthy. Not only are works worthy, but today man's works have basically abrogated with the, the, the statement that Christ made on the cross. It is finished. According to most people, it's not still finished i got to help finish it with my works. And that's basically not what David's saying. He's saying it's all the Lord. He continues to pray that God would rescue him from his troubles and make escape from temptations. Can someone look up 1 Corinthians 10, 13? All right, now we're going into the next part. Well, I just, whatever. Let me just say this for a minute while you're looking it up. David says, and going to verses 171 to 174, he talks about his lips uttering praise. He talks about the statutes. He says, my tongue shall speak thy word. What word and what kind of worship are we talking about? Anyone have that? 1 Corinthians 10:13. Boy, that's important. Thank you, Faith. That's so important. We heard about temptation a few weeks ago. And I think today we've lost really a very important foundational principle on temptation. And this is just my opinion, but I believe that people think temptation really is sin. Because if you can can differentiate temptation from sin... There is a a standard, a line drawn between temptation and sin. When you're tempted and you're being pulled to do something you know is destructive and it's wrong and it's scripturally totally unbiblical and it's a sin, people just dive right into it today because they think it's a sin anyway. Wait, why bother? Might as well enjoy it. There's no life after death, so save your breath. That's basically what most people say. But the temptation in and of itself cannot be a sin Or we're worshiping a Savior that actually sinned when he was tempted. And you go to Matthew chapter 4, that's not true. Christ was tempted by Satan, but he didn't in into it. And if we understand what temptation really is, we can stop at that temptation and pray and ask the Lord to keep us from falling into that horrible trap. That's the difference. Temptation and sin are two different things. But just like Pastor Coleman said a few weeks ago, isn't it amazing how... I think one of the things he said is that many, many people may think that they're only tempted once in a while. No, we're tempted almost every minute of the day. It's incredible how many temptations are thrown at us every day. He says, "'My lips shall utter praise from thy statues. My tongue shall speak of thy word. Let thy hand help me. I've longed for thy salvation.'" David praised the he praises the Lord predicated on obedience to the worship of Jehovah Quana. Has anybody ever heard that? Has anybody ever heard that name for God? Jehovah Quana? That's an important name. Does anybody know what that means? What the definition of that is? I have a whole drop down of names that, 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 for Jehovah, Hebrew words. I'll have to bring that into you one day. Jehovah Kwana, it means he is the God that is jealous. He is the God that says in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. He's saying, I am the Lord thy God. It's what he told Moses. Remember, you tell the people I am that I am. How are they going to believe me? You tell them I'm the God of your fathers. You tell them, let my people go. You tell Pharaoh, let them go, because I want you to worship me out in the wilderness in my sanctuary. I want you to physically go there and worship me says, I am that I am. <coughs> but Jehovah Kwan, that's a very important name. It's a jealous God, a God that will not stand next to another false idol. He will not have anything to do with that. So today brings up a real question. Five points here. How today's Christianity differs with what David is trying to teach us, and that's why I believe it's so important to look over these words and to really have them and it in our hearts about the inerrancy of Scripture. Five points of today's progressive Christianity. What is progressive Christianity? Does anybody have any idea? you have any words, anything you can think about what progressive Christianity might be? It doesn't have to be a definition. It could be like a description or some kind of a symptom. Matt. That's a great way of putting it. Yep. Yep, and that's right in Schedule 501c3 section 35 community conscience that's a great way of putting it I think progressive Christianity in and of itself is an oxymoron why is progressive Christianity a bad word why is it I mean a bad phrase because Christianity is not progressive it's perfected by Christ's blood how can it be progressing how does Christianity evolve you know one way you can debunk evolution is we're not evolving are you evolving? Are you going up? Are you getting younger every day? Are you getting further away from the grave? Are you getting better every day physically and spiritually and mentally? No, we're devolving, if anything. And so progressive Christianity, that in and of itself doesn't even make any sense. Christianity does not progress. It's Christ, what, what, what's the verse? I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. So how can we make that progressive That in and of itself, that in and of that statement is a statement of works. If you think about it, you have to use a work to make Christ progress. And that's what we're seeing in a lot of entertainment in churches today. So, what is progressive Christianity? Well, this is the definition that the progressive movement gives it the center of progressive Christianity. There's always a center, there's always some acronym. The TCPC, the Center for Progressive Christianity. By definition, progressive Christianity is is always, oh, and I love, they cannot stay away from this word. Today, by definition, progressive Christianity is always evolving and therefore impossible to pin down. If you ask a room full of progressive Christians what progressive Christianity means to us, you will get as many different answers as there are people. Well, that's, that's a perfect good statement. I will give them that. Because who is the master of complication and confusion? It ain't Christ. Pastor. Well, we were talking about last time, the time before that, about the creeds, about confession, and, you know, why we have the discussion and what is it? Well, it's, it's exactly for that reason. Because we talked to 100 different people, 100 different people think 100 different things. That's right. Amen, And that goes back to the question about evolution. If you ask an evolu- take a panel of ten evolutionists, don't let them talk together because you know they're going to do everything they can to try to meld their brains together to try to debunk you, but if you sit them up there and they've never talked to each other and you ask each one of them how old a shark is, you're going to get a different response from each one of them. I heard two of them, one said 440 million years ago, one said something like 25 million years ago. None of them are ever on the same page. They can, none of them can ever say what, how old the earth is or how old a shark is or an elephant or mankind or whatever. It's the, they're, they're, it's, that's exactly what's being said here. He, this man is saying, or this, this progressive Christianity movement is saying, if you get 100 Christian progressive Christians in the same room, none of them can answer it the same way and answer what it is. I think that's very important. Here are five points of current ecclesiastical conscience backed up by absolutely no scripture. How can you talk about Christianity without scripture? How can you do that? Number one, I'll try to go through this quick. I hate to do this quick. But from the center for progressive Christianity, number one, Believe that following the way and teaching of Jesus can lead to experiencing sacredness, wholeness and unity of all life, even as we recognize that the Spirit moves in beneficial ways, in many here it goes, in many faith traditions. And if you look at this further, they're basically saying that He moves in all faith traditions. So it doesn't matter who you belong to. what matter what you believe. He is there with you no matter what you believe in. Isn't that pretty obvious today that this relativism goes into... There's no right or wrong. Two and two equals six. Four and four equals three. Nothing equals what it's supposed to anymore. That's number one. You know, what? the problem that I have, I have a problem with some of these progressive sayings that are out there today. Have you ever heard the term people call it? I've heard this one. I've heard this one on that... Uh, that guy at 130 that deals with all these people's problems on a Christian talk show and they always think they they actually quote a lot of the new progressive like pastors out there one of the things I hate are one of the words the phrases see if you all remember this one God-sized prayers what is a God-sized prayer how can God ever even be measured King David who was the most powerful man in the world says God can't be measured God-sized prayers. That's a God-sized prayer. All right, well, where's the measuring stick? How far can he go? Is there a rock too big that he can't pick up over his head? No, I think the Lord could pick up a rock as big as it is, as far as it is, and throw it through the universe if he wanted to. He certainly created them. God-sized prayers. Here's another problem, another word that I have. We'll get to number two in a minute. Yahweh. Y'all don't even think that's a bad word, do you? You all think that's probably part of our Christian lingo, isn't it? Well, let's look at Yahweh. The word Yahweh, which I don't like to ever use, actually, I did used to use it, and someone corrected me on it, and I changed my ways real quick when I started researching it. I didn't know. Yahweh, 1869, it's called a hypothetical reconstruction of a tetragrammation. A tetragrammation is is a Hebrew name of Jehovah, trans, uh, transliteration with four letters. It used to be, from Hebrew, the four-letter translation was J-H-V-H. Can you figure out what that means? Jehovah. okay? So that's a transliteration. Well, in 1869, it was changed to H-V-H-W. No, no, Y-H-W-H. Now what does that stand for? Yahweh. Y-W-H-W. Yahweh. Anybody finds the word Yahweh in your King James Bible, I'll give you 500 bucks cash right now. No, I didn't think you were going to raise your hand. It's not there. Why? 1869, this hypothetical reconstruction It was based on an imperfect or an incompletion of the Hebrew verb Hawah, H-A-W-A-H, which means Jehovah's Witness Word. It's brought this word, and basically, guess where the very first time the word Yahweh was ever used? It was used in the... Well, it's called the members of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society in 1933. That's when it was first used in America in theolo- theological transliterations. Now, what is the Watchtower? Right, a bunch of nuts. They're the ones that used it first. You know, 1933. It actually started. It's it started to evolve in 1869 where actually it was a it was a a vowel substitution. It was originally made by the Masoretes as a direction to substitute Adonai for the ineffable name using Yahweh, and it was used in European schools and theological levels with Hebrew, which yielded the Latin Jehovah to now become Yahweh, because they said that the imperfection there was that jehovah was not quite was not understood enough but yahweh since we now came up with this new meaning and definition and it's supposed to mean adonai where if you go to psalm 110:1 1, the lord said to my lord sit thou at my right hand until i make thine enemies thy footstool if you noticed in that verse lord is in capital letters the first time the second one is a capital l little o little r little d and what they say is Yahweh says to Adonai, sit thou at my right hand. It's not Yahweh, it's Jehovah. That's the original, that is the name of God. And there's all kinds of different names of Jehovah. There's Jehovah Elohim, we talked about that, the creator and judge of the earth. There's Jehovah Nisai, the God of banners who can never be defeated. Jehovah Quanah, the jealous God who will not be replaced by another idol. Jehovah Rapha or Raphekah, the great physician, Jehovah-Jireh, remember that one. That was Abraham's favorite term. Once used in Scripture, thanking the Lord for not letting him tear his son to pieces on that altar and having him bleed out like a, like a lamb. He said, Jehovah-Jireh, the great provider of all things. That's who we refer to. And, we, and these progressive statements are very, they can be extremely confusing to people. That's number one. We see here in, in this, in this number, one, number one where it says that, that the Spirit moves in beneficial ways in many faith traditions. And, and the, the movement here, the head of this movement says, I wholly, wholeheartedly embrace this. Christians believe that God became flesh in Jesus Christ. Therefore, Jesus is the center of the Christian faith for those who embrace the label progressive and those who do not. That's bad. Pastor... Yes. That's a great point. The thing is, is that they don't want to use the old name Jehovah anymore, they want a new name. Right. And Jehovah is what's used in the King James. That's right. And uh, the thing is, is that Yahweh is not any more corrupt than Jehovah is. Right. That's right. New. That's it. How about the new, how about it's another progressive phrase. New normal. In my opinion, the new normal is the old immoral. That's what the new normal is. Well, watch this one. There's a lot more to say about this, but we're not going to have enough time. But he does say God is love and Jesus is love in flesh. For me, love communicates most clearly in an embodied form. Jesus shows how to use our heads, hearts, and hands to build the beloved community. That means all the churches. Remember the Manhattan Declaration? Remember that years ago? Where it was supposed to be like a Justice League of Christian people that were all supposed to come and stop all these horrible things. First of all, they never stopped them. And number two, it was Catholics, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Mormons all coming together, signing this name, signing your name to pledge allegiance to this Manhattan Declaration to become part of this union of Christians that was going to stop crime, basically. And you ought to see some of the names that were on it. Yet all faiths are love languages. I agree. The Spirit moves in beneficial ways in all faiths. Number two, seek community that, it, what do we just say? this beloved community, seek community that is inclusive of all people. Honoring differences in theological perspective, age, race, sexual orientation, gender identity, expression, class, or ability. Boy, it's amazing how they threw that little gender thing in there with class and ability. Talk about who the real racists are. These are the people that are the real racists because they're taking it and they're proclaiming it and they're showing it. They're the ones making up the differences between the races and people that maybe aren't the same and then they throw another minority check bar. Go, Go now, try to get an MRI now. Go in and try to fill out a form up at the MVA. Now you have all these little boxes for different genders. Where'd that come from? We always want something new. This is progressive. I don't think it's progressive. I think it's destructive. It says we are in, we are interconnected by and in love, which binds and sustains us all. You see how loving these people are when you name when you mention the name of Jesus Christ. Boy, they're not loving anymore, are they? They grow fangs and horns out their ears. Lisa. Yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah, just think of how many different birth certificates, new ones they'd have to make up if they had all the. There's like, there, was, there was a guy from Germany, he was on a, a YouTube website. I was watching him. There are, t- there are at least 28 different translations now of gender identity, whether it's with children, whether it's adults, whether, I, and it's so disgusting. You, you hear some of these words that they make up, it's, it's incredible. Talk about progressive terminology. That's number two, but let me, let, me, let, me, let me finish up with number two here. But what about those who do not value inclusion, who harbor exclu- exclusive... That's, that's us. We're the terrorists, you know. Uh, the ones who believe the truth. Who do not value inclusion, who harbor exclusive beliefs or religious interpretations. Beloved community begins with the marginalized and vulnerable, those traditionally excluded and exploited. Thus, those who would exclude others ultimately exclude themselves. What they don't say in here, <coughs> where Bible-believing churches ever tell anybody they're not allowed in their church? Where? Anybody, on any walk of life, color, race, gender, I don't care what, they come in here, we will witness to them. The difference is, will we put them in the pulpit? That's the difference. That's what they're talking about. Understand that? Even so, by working for the needs and well-being of all, starting with the marginalized and radiating outward, we deepen the love within ourselves and reach out to love within others. We can express agreement where it exists, hold firm to our values when others challenge them, and show compassion overall. Eventually, compassion wears down callousness and empathy erodes enmity. This is how we move from rivalry to relationship. When was Christ's ministry not a massive rivalry. He was all, he was always being pursued to kid, be killed. As a Christian, you're going to find out that there is a lot of rivalry. That's number two. I'm going find number three here. Strive for peace and justice among all people, knowing that behaving with compassion and selfless love toward one another is the fullest expression of what we believe. That's number three. Number four, Embrace the insights of contemporary science and strive to protect the earth and ensure its integrity and sustainability. The Lord has no way of doing that, I guess. He designed, engineered, created, and perfectly plumbed and did everything to this earth to make those lights go on. And so it's up to us to keep. How in the world are you supposed to protect the ozone layer? How is that even physically possible? I mean, it certainly hasn't worked thus far with all these inventions and the billions and trillions of dollars. Lisa? Yeah. No, it's not. It's putting their confidence in something else other than the great creator of this earth. When we have to be able to take, we can't even have combustible engines that are actually the safest mode of transportation. I don't have to tell you all this. And, and you're having, you have electric cars blowing up everywhere, and they're not transporting people safely and all. And you have all of these things. I mean, I'll give you one thing that we see in our own industry. They have put so many emissions on a Caterpillar bulldozer that within the first year of its life, if that machine is being ran and idled A lot of contractors like to use the cabs in those machines for, for heat and for air conditioning and they're out there on a job site. Now the emissions are so complicated, computerized, they literally choke and restrict the diesel engine itself and within a year the engine starts showing, a brand new engine shows premature warping on the heads and the metal because it's overheating because the emissions are restricting the airflow. It's not good and it's actually very dangerous. Because it can cause these machines and trucks to break down in the middle of operation in some of the most sensitive and horrible areas. And that's what's happening. That's just one of a million things that they're doing with, with all of this green stuff. Lisa. Right. That's right. They do and we've done it. We've proved it. Way better gas mileage. So that's number four, embrace the insights of contemporary science. What are they saying here? Embracing science is vital, yet many people of faith struggle to reconcile perceived incompatibilities between faith and science where ancient understanding contradicts scientific discovery. I've waged this struggle and emphasized with it my interpretation of faith now rejects Literalism it acknowledges that ancient storytelling was not designed to fulfill the same purpose as scientific inquiry. Right there you have evolution. You have theistic evolution. Number five, commit to a path of long, lifelong learning, believing there is more value in questioning than in absolutes. And two of the things to question, God is love, love redeems and reconciles us all. They're saying to question that. Now, I'm bringing this up because basically you're hearing this a lot. This, one of these five points is going to really pop up in these prosperity messages that are out there. If you listen and if you hear them or you see any of the books, or re, you're going to see this pop up. That it's not enough to just have all of, our, all of our hope and all of our faith in the Lord. We need help. And then basically the bottom line is, the question is asked, what do you think? And they want to hear all about it. But we see that David saw that the result of seeking after the Lord and waiting upon him as Jacob wrestled with the angels to be blessed, to produce a zeal, and to have a closeness to the Lord. Our outlet is to praise Him. We're to magnify Him. All five of these points, they fall by their own weight because they don't magnify the Lord and there's no scripture to back them up. If God releases us from our trials and tribulations and we cannot praise him, then what have we gained? We'll finish up here, but we see here how David finishes up. The Lord, the Lord had put it on his heart. He says, my tongue shall speak of thy word. Let thine hand help me, he says. He had, David had chosen the precepts of God because God had chosen him first. In Psalm 89.3 we read, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant. David's heart was, was upon heaven because he had longed for salvation. Revelations 21.1 says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I saw, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I'm going to leave you with this. I saw this and I thought this was one of the saddest things I heard for the week, if not longer. But we see how over and over we see how David speaks about Jerusalem. We read in the New Testament of the New Jerusalem. We see it connected to Israel. And has anybody heard of a man named Nigel Farage? Have you heard of him? He is one of the founding fathers of the, of the Brexit over there in, in England. And he was speaking at CPAC here at the National Harbor on Friday. And he said this. He said, it, And he was speaking about Judeo-Christianity and how we need to protect it. Two men, there are the only two men that I have heard mention that, protecting Christians and their values is Donald Trump and this man. I haven't heard anyone else say that. I haven't heard Nikki Haley say that, Ron DeSantis. Anyone else use that terminology? And he came out and he said, I looked up at Big Ben over there in England. He, he looked at Big Ben and it, there was a big sign that says, this is Big Ben now. You're talking about a major, it'd be like putting it on the Statue of Liberty here. It says, over land and sea, Gaza will be free. And he said, that's coming to your nation. He said, you better be careful, it's coming. And he was very upset about that. Lisa. They're all over Baltimore City. Dave and I, we were on the 16th floor. You can look out the window and see them all over the place. That's a lot of land. That's a very, very, very dangerous. But the bottom line is here, David, he, he, we, as we wind up here in Psalm 119, remember the words that he uses to uplift Scripture and how he loves the statutes of the Lord. Let's finish with prayer. May I ask Brother Dave Peter, could you close us this, this morning? Thank you.